Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we are picking up with step number five on repentance and the description of the prison, uh, where those who had fallen from, from grace or fallen really had broken their vows uh, went to embrace a life of, of deep and constant penance under the guidance of uh, a wise elder. And so tonight we're picking up on the page of top of page 99 with number eight. And uh, I'm going to try to go through uh, his description of the uh, prison and uh, th then open it up for discussion here. But then before we move on to the rest of his discussion of repentance as a whole. Others sat on the ground in sackcloth and ashes, hiding their faces between their knees, and they struck the earth with their foreheads. Others were continually beating their breasts and recalling their past life and state of soul. Some of them watered the ground with their tears. Others, incapable of tears, struck themselves. Some loudly lamented over their souls as over the dead not having the strength to bear the anguish of their heart. Others groaned in their heart, but stifled all sound of their lamentations. But sometimes they could control themselves no longer and would suddenly cry out. I saw there were some who seemed from their demeanor and their thoughts to be out of their mind. In their great disconsolateness, they had become like dumb men in complete darkness and were insensible to the whole of life. Their minds had already sunk to the very depths of humility and had burnt up the tears in their eyes with the fire of their melancholy. Others sat pensive and bowed to the ground, swaying their heads unceasingly and roaring and moaning like lines from their inmost heart to their teeth. And some were praying in good hope of and asking for complete forgiveness, others out of unspeakable humility condemned themselves as unworthy of forgiveness, and would cry out that it was not within their power to give an apology before God. Some begged the Lord that they be punished here and receive mercy in the next world. Others crushed by the weight of their conscience would say in all sincerity, Spare us from future punishment, even though we are not worthy to be granted the kingdom, and that will satisfy us. I saw their humble and contrite souls oppressed by the weight of their burden. Their voices and outcries to God would have moved the very stones to compassion. For casting their gaze to the earth, they would say, we know, we know that in all justice we deserve every punishment and torment. For even if we were to summon the whole world to weep for us, we would not be able to give an apology for the multitude of our debts. But this is our only petition. This is our prayer. This is our supplication that he may not rebuke us in anger, nor chasten us in his wrath. Punish, but spare. It is sufficient for us if thou deliver us from thy great wrath, thy great threat, from the unknown and hidden torments. For we dare not ask for complete forgiveness. How could we? For we have not kept our vows spotless, but after thy former loving kindness and forgiveness, we have defiled it. And there, friends, the fulfillment of the words David could be clearly seen. Men enduring hardship and bowed down to the end of their life, going about with downcast face all day long noisome on account of the corruption of their body's wounds, and they took, uh, I'm sorry, and they took no notice of them, and they forgot to eat their bread, and they mingled their drink of water with weeping. They ate dust and ashes with their bread, and their bones cleaved to their flesh and were withered like grass. You could hear from them nothing but the words, woe, woe, alas, alas, it is just, it is just, spare us, spare us, O Master. Some were saying, have mercy, have mercy. And others still more plaintively, forgive, O Master, forgive if it is possible. 
One could see how the tongues of some of them were parched and hung out of their mouths like a dog's. Some chastised themselves in the scorching sun, others tormented themselves in the cold. Some having tasted a little water so as not to die of thirst, stopped drinking. Others having nibbled a little bread, flung the rest of it away and said that they were unworthy of being fed like human beings since they had behaved like beasts. Where could you see anything like laughter or idle talking or irritation or anger? They did not even know that such a thing as anger existed among men because in themselves grief had finally eradicated anger. Where among them was gainsaying or a feast or audacious speech or concern for the body or a trace of vanity or hope of comfort? or thought of wine, or eating of fruit, or the cheer of cooked food, or pleasing the palate. For even the hope of all such things had been extinguished in them in this present world. Where amongst them is there any care for earthly things, or condemnation of anyone? Nowhere at all. Such were the unceasing utterances and cries to the Lord which they made, some striking themselves hard on the breast as if standing before the gates of heaven would say to God, open to us, O judge, open. We have shut ourselves out by our sins, open to us. Others would say, cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. Another again, give light to the humble sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. And another, let thy compassions quickly go before us, O Lord. We have perished, we have despaired, for we have utterly fallen away. Some would say, will the Lord ever again cause his face to shine upon us? Others, will our soul pass through the insupportable debt? Another said, will the Lord at last be moved to mercy for us? Shall we ever hear him say, to us who are unending, who are in unending bonds, go forth, and to us who are in hell of repentance, be forgiven, as our cry reached the ears of the Lord. They all used to sit with the sight of death unceasingly before their eyes and say, how will it be with us? What will be our sentence? What kind of end shall we have? Will there be reprieve for us? Will there be forgiveness for those in darkness, the base, the convicted? Is our prayer powerful enough to enter before the Lord, or has it been deservedly rejected, deemed worthless and shameful? And if it did reach the Lord, how much of the divine favor would it gain there? What success would it have? What profit would it bring? What power would it have? Coming from foul lips and bodies, it would not have great power. And so it would reconcile us, and so would it reconcile us with the judge completely, or only in part, or even in the extent of half our sores, because they really are great, calling for much sweat and labor and toil. Have our guardian angels drawn nearer to us, or are they still far from us? And until they come nearer to us, all our labors are futile and useless, for our prayer has not the power of access, nor the wings of purity to reach the Lord, unless our angels approach us and take it to bring it and bring it to the Lord. Some often expressed their doubts to each other and said, are we accomplishing anything, brothers? Are we obtaining our request? Will the Lord accept us again? Will he open to us? And to others would reply, this would, others would reply, we know as our brothers, the Ninevites said, if God will repent and will deliver us from great punishment, in any case, let us do our part. And if he opens the door, well and good. And if not, blessed is the Lord God, who in his justice has closed the door to us. At least let us persist in knocking at the door till the end of our life. Perhaps he will open to us for our great assiduity and importunity. Therefore, they exhorted one another, saying, let us run, brothers, let us run, for we need to run and to run hard because we have fallen behind our holy company. 
Let us run not to spare this our foul and wicked flesh, but let us kill it as it has killed us. And that is what these blessed ones who had been called to account were actually doing. From the number of their prostrations, their knees seemed to have become wooden, their eyes dim and sunk deep within their sockets. They had no hair. Their cheeks were bruised and burnt by the scalding of hot tears. Their faces were pale and wasted. They were quite indistinguishable from corpses. Their breasts were livid with bl from blows and from their frequent beating of the chest, they spat blood. Where was to be found in this place any rest on beds or clean or starched clothes? They're all torn and dirty and covered with lice. In comparison with them, what are the sufferings of the possessed or of those weeping for the dead or those living in exile or, or of those condemned for murder? Their involuntary torture and punishment is really nothing in comparison with this voluntary suffering. I ask you brothers not to regard all this as a made up story. Often they applied to the great judge. I mean the shepherd, that angel among men with request and begged him to put irons and chains on their hands and neck and to bind their legs tightly to the stalks and not to set them free until the tomb received them or not even the tomb. For I shall certainly not hide this moving humility of these blessed men and their contrite love for God and repentance. When one of these good inhabitants of the land of repentance was about to go to God and stand before the impartial tribunal, then as soon as he saw that his end was at hand, with adjurations, he would beg the great abbot through the superior set over them not to give him human burial, but fling him like an irrational beast into a riverbed or to give up him to wild animals in the fields. And this was often done by that lamp of discernment who had ordered the dead to be carried out without any psalmody or honor. Most terrible and pitiful was the sight of their last hour when his fellow convicts learnt that one of their number was ready to precede them by finishing his course, they gathered round him while his mind was still active and with thirst and tears, with love, with a tender look and sad voice shaking their heads, they would ask the dying man and burning with compassion would say to him, how are you brother and fellow criminal? What will you say? What do you hope? What do you expect? Have you accomplished what you sought with such labor or not? Has the door been opened to you or are you still under judgment? You have, attained, have you attained your object or not yet? Have you received any sort of assurance or is your hope still uncertain? Have you obtained freedom or is your thought clouded with doubt? Have you felt any enlightenment in your heart or is it still dark and ashamed? Has any inner voice said, behold, thou art made whole? or thy sins are forgiven thee, or have faith, thy faith has saved thee? Or have you heard the voice like this, that the sinners be turned away in Hades and bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness? And again, let the ungodly be taken away that he see not the glory of the Lord, see not the glory of the Lord. What quite simply can you say, brother? Tell us, we beg you, that we too may know in what state we shall be for your time is already closed and you will never find another opportunity. To this, some of the dying would reply, blessed is God who hath not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from, away from me. Others again, blessed is the Lord who hath not given us to be the prey to their teeth. Others said dolefully, will, will our soul pass through the irresistible waters of the spirits of the air not having complete confidence, but looking to see what would happen in the rendering of accounts. Others still more dolefully would answer and say, woe to the soul that has not kept its vow intact. In this hour and in this only, it will know what it is prepared for. So, very challenging to listen to. And uh, again, John 
does not uh, varnish uh, what it is that he saw in this place of, of deep repentance, even the most disturbing aspects of it in regards to the penances that they took or their physical appearance or even the struggle at the moment of death uh, to uh, find there whether or not uh, they would receive comfort or hope. And so very challenging uh, to read. And again, you know, I think what we are seeing here is John presenting us uh, with the most challenging and the outer limits, challenging vision and outer limits of penance and humility. And one that uh, does not, and we'll, we'll hear from him later on as he unpacks this. And so again, I'm asking people just to hold the image as John did uh, in his mind. And uh, because he was shaken by this, as we all see, and it changed him, he says, after, after leaving the place, that there is something about this deep penance that is reflective of the true darkness of sin and what it brings to a soul, that we often can be uh, sort of casual about falls into sin uh, and, and that darkness that, that comes to a soul and the penance that is required from us or contrition or compunction. And so I think before John begins to uh, lay out for us how it is that we understand repentance, uh, and he'll do this not only in this step, but in the next on mourning, and then following that uh, on penance itself. And uh, not, not, I mean, on remembrance of death, which follows this one, and then on penance itself. And so he's going to work with us here the next couple of steps to, to draw us uh, as deep as he can. So on paragraph in paragraph 30, 23, he picks up to discuss something of his of this experience. Anthony. Perhaps this morning is actually the goal even or of even modern day sentences for fallen religious to retire to monastery or do penance for great sins. It sounds like it is for the, the most serious of sins. Yes, you know, I th think what John tells us is that these are those who had broken their vows and had broken them in very serious ways. And uh, I think part of what's being presented to us then is what is the resp response of the soul or the one who has faith and who sees with a kind of clarity the, the, the reality of the cross and what we see there in regards to our savior nailed to it and then turning away from it. And what is the response of a soul in the face of that, especially when there is a gravity of sin or profound you know, disorder or corruption? And so we, we see John's response here in the coming paragraphs. He says, but when I had seen and heard all this among them, I nearly despaired of myself, seeing my own indifference and comparing it with their suffering. For what a place and habitation theirs was. All dark, reeking, filthy, and squalid, it was rightly called the prison and house of convicts. The very sight of the place was sufficient to teach all repentance and mourning. But what is hard and intolerable for others becomes easy and acceptable for those who have fallen away from virtue and spiritual riches. For the soul that has lost its former confidence, that has lost hope of dispassion, that has broken the seal of chastity, that has allowed its treasury of gifts to be robbed, that has become a stranger to divine consolation, that has rejected the commandment of the Lord, that has extinguished the beautiful fire of spiritual tears and is wounded and pierced with sorrow by the remembrance of this, will not only undertake the above mentioned labors with all readiness, but will even devoutly resolve to kill itself with ascetic labor, ascetical labors. If only there is in it a remnant of a spark of love or fear of the Lord. Such in truth, were these blessed men. 
for keeping these things in mind and considering the height of virtue from which they had fallen, they would say, we remember days of old and that fire of our zeal. Some would cry to God, where are thine ancient mercies, O Lord, such as thou didst reveal to our soul in, the, in thy truth? Remember the reproach and hardships of thy servants. And another would say, oh, might, oh, who might make me as I was in the months of days past, wherein God kept me when the lamp of his light shone over the head of my heart. How they would recall their former attainments, the bewailing them as if they were children that had died. They would say, where is my purity of prayer? Where is its boldness? Where are the sweet tears instead of the bitter? Where's the hope of perfect chastity and purification? Where is the expectation of blessed dispassion? Where is my faith in the shepherd? Where's the effect of his prayer in us? All this is lost and has slipped away as if it had never appeared and has vanished as if it had never been. So the, the image here, John begins to gradually draw us into what, again, is perhaps a horrid image for us. And he describes it as bewailing these things you know, from the past that they had experienced in the grace of God as children that had died. And so the mourning over the loss of that which is good that comes from the hand of God is experienced in the most piercing of ways. And so what, what it is that we receive from the hand of God and what it is that we receive in the Holy Eucharist and uh, what it is that we've received from you know, God's mercy at every single moment and the gift of his spirit. You know, if one sees the preciousness of all of that, then one can only be pierced to the heart when there is the acknowledgement that it has been cast off and so often cast off for things that are of no value or that come to nothing. And so John begins to reveal to us that, you know, part of this deep sorrow and mourning is also the appreciation of what it is that was lost and its preciousness. And that it is not something that one can regain on one's own. That to cast away one's chastity or purity or something like dispassion is not something that we can turn around and grasp at and take back for ourselves. And some prayed to become possessed by devils. Others begged the Lord that they might fall into epilepsy. Some wished to lose their eyes and present a pitiful spectacle. Others to become paralyzed, only that they might not experience sufferings hereafter. And I, my friends, found so much pleasure in their grief that I forgot myself. And I was wholly wrapped in mind and could not contain myself. But let us resume our discourse. So, you know, John's response is curious, you know, both he's shaken by it, as we will see, but there's also something in it that he finds admirable that and lacking within himself, that this deep sorrow over sin is something that he does not see within himself. Daniel. This oddly makes me think of Mary holding Jesus when he was taken down from the cross, her son, all her joy and blessing, now lifeless in her hands, but not there, but waiting, awaiting the resurrection. Yes, you know, the, the you know, bringing of Christ down from the cross, you know, the, or even simply witnessing the way of the cross or Mary at the tomb you know, running there to do what was going to be impossible, which was to anoint the body of, of her Lord, uh, what they were prevented from doing. And so she runs to the tomb, even knowing that it was sealed with a stone. And, uh, and so there's a, a kind of, of grief there at the loss of love, of he who is love itself. And 
you know, again, it takes a willingness, I think, for, for us to enter into a place like this where perhaps we, we don't certainly naturally want to go and even on a spiritual level would resist that what, what is something of the, the experience of the loss of grace, the loss of love. And, you know, I, I do think this is where, you know, so many of the images of Mary at the foot of the cross or when the body of the Lord is being taken down or again, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, you know, that one who had given her life meaning identity was now gone and uh, lost to her. And this is how these men are experiencing uh, the loss of the presence of the Lord in their, in their life and the loss of the gifts and the experiences that they had received by, by his grace. Having stayed for 30 days in the prison, impatient as I am, I returned to the great monastery and the great shepherd. And when he saw that I was quite changed and had not yet come to myself like a wise man, he understood what this change meant and said, well, Father John, did you see the struggles of those who labor at their task? I replied, I saw them, Father, and I was amazed. And I consider those fallen mourners more blessed than those who have not fallen and are not mourning over themselves because as a result of their fall, they have risen by a sure resurrection. There is no, there is certainly so, he said, and this, and his truthful tongue related to me this story. About 10 years ago, I had a brother here who was extremely zealous and active. And so when I saw that he was so burning in spirit, I trembled for him, lest out of envy the devil should trip his foot against a stone as he sped along on his course, as is apt to happen to those who walk swiftly. And that is just what happened. Late one evening, he came to me, showed me the open wound, wanted plaster, asked for cauterization, and was very alarmed. Then when he saw that the doctor did not wish to make too severe an incision because he deserved sympathy, he flung himself on the ground, embraced my feet, moistened them with abundant tears, and asked to be shut in the prison, which you saw. It is impossible for me not to go there, he cried. Finally, a rare and most unusual thing among the sick, he urged the doctor to change his kindness into to sternness, and with all haste, he went to the penitents and became their companion and fellow sufferer. The grief that springs from love of God pierced his heart as with a sword. And on the eighth day, he departed to the Lord, asking that he should not be given burial. But I brought him here and buried him among the fathers as he deserved, because after his week of slavery, and on the eighth day, he was released as a free man. And there is one who knows for certain that he did not rise from my foul and wretched feet before he had won God's favor. And no wonder, for having received in his heart the faith of the harlot in the gospel, he moistened my lowly feet with the same assurance. All things are possible to him that believeth, said the Lord. I have seen impure souls raving madly about physical love but making their experience of such love a reason for repentance, they transferred the same love to the Lord. And overcoming all fear, they spurred themselves insatiably on to the love of God. That is why the Lord does not say of that chaste harlot, because she feared, but because she loved much and could easily expel love by love. So it's interesting, you know, John is looking at this experience and inviting us to do so as well. And through this conversation with the elder as an expression of the love of these men and their, their love for Christ, that the severe pain that they experience uh, is a reflection again of 
of the love that they lost. And again, there's the specific reference to the chaste harlot, you know, that she, she saw and she anointed the feet and the head of the Lord, understanding what was coming. Uh, and if you remember in the gospel, we we're told that, you know, what she has done uh, will be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that she understood the depth of the Lord's love and what he had done for her, and the mourning of his loss and impending loss moves her to the deepest of tears. And so John comes to see these men as blessed that in some ways they, they make that course to the Lord and to his mercy with greater swiftness than, than many, that having fallen from grace, that what arises out of them is a true knowledge of sin and, uh, and true compunction. Carol. This, it reminds me of the Song of Songs, Chasing After the Beloved. Yeah, very much. I think it's hard to see it. Uh, you know, even as I was reading it, the 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 severity and the intensity of it is uh, is something that pierces to to the heart. Uh, and but John, you know, who certainly himself was uh, deeply immersed in the life of repentance, sees something within them that is reflective of a love that he could not see within himself, that drove them, uh, you know, almost to a kind of madness in the pursuit of it again, having lost it. And uh, again, you know, I think uh, Mary at the tomb, or uh, again, anointing of the feet and the uh, head of the Lord is reflective of that as well, you know, there's a kind of uh, inconsolable sorrow there until she has him back again, you know, when he speaks her name, Mary. And, uh, you know, even there, you know, she, she wants to cling to him. And if you remember, it's a really uh, difficult passage to read because it says, do not cling to me. Until, you know, I said to my father and your father, my God and your God, that, uh, you know, that she is to receive him back, not in the way that she had him before, not to cling to this limited view of love and what she had with him when she had in, him in person, to let him ascend to the father in order that he might become present to her in a way that knows no limitation. And, uh, you know, within these men, I think we find this same, you know, inconsolable kind of sorrow that only receiving the Lord back and this truest assurance that mercy had been given would be enough to console the mind and the heart. Daniel writes here, this oddly makes me think of Mary holding Jesus. Okay, I already read that. Okay. Okay. So hang with me here, folks. Just we're making our way here. I am fully aware, my good friends, that the struggles I have described will seem to some incredible, to others hard to believe, and will seem to some to breed despair. But to the courageous soul, they will serve as a spur and a shaft of fire. And he will go away carrying zeal in his heart. He who is not up to this will realize his infirmity. And having easily obtained humility by self-reproach, he will run after the former. And I do not know whether he may not even overtake him. But the careless man should leave my stories alone, lest he despair and squander even the little he has accomplished. And thus correspond to the, correspond to the man of whom it was said, but from him that hath no desire or eagerness, even what he hath will be taken away from him. So John is saying here that, that those who read what he's written here have to be careful 
that if we read it with you know a lack of that measure of desire for the lord much like the one who takes that talent and buries it in the ground and uh simply uh, acknowledging that his master is harsh and demanding that one will lose even what what has whereas if one reads this and allows it to spur them on to greater repentance to a greater turning away from sin and a greater longing for God in the life of virtue and the desire to protect it, then he might outrun in the fruits of repentance of what we see here, that having captured something of the zeal and the spirit of repentance that is expressed in them, that he might avoid the, those falls altogether and yet out, outrun them uh, with this acknowledgement of God's mercy and the preciousness of it and the desire never to lose hold of it. And so, it's a, uh, as I mentioned before, it's a sort of a risky thing that John puts forward here because to have us and to, and to seek to enliven within us this deep desire for virtue and hatred for sin and the acknowledgement of what sin does to us, that he's, he's willing to push us to the, the very limits of what seems uh, to really truly be a, a prison of, of a life, something that is quite awful and that captures something of uh, the hellishness of sin and the darkness of sin. And it's not something that he, he clearly says that everyone can read and that is kind of dangerous to, to read it if it's going to be dismissed because then one can lose even the little zeal that one has for the for the life of virtue if one isn't spurred on by it rachel writes you touch upon something that i was wondering about how at the core of a lack of desire to make reparation to live a penitential life in the acknowledgement of what sin does to us is a lack of faith in the goodness of god yeah, a lack of faith in the goodness of God and of his love, the inability to see the, the truth of that, of what it is that has been given and the preciousness of it. And it's in a similar way, you know, I think if we come back to that image of the man bearing the talent in the ground, you know, that he, he doesn't understand what is given to him and, does, and so doesn't invest it fully or invest himself fully in it partly out of fear but i think also out of a lack of love for his his master and in the Evergatinos, a week or so ago we hear about the servants who were the master they refused to do what the master asked them to do when he was leaving to go over to this other part of land across a river and to work there and in his mercy and love he sort of they get drunk and he carries them over at night. And some of them respond to this and saying, look how much the master loves us, that he puts us in the place, even when we were uh, indolent, even when we, we were unwilling to do what he asked of us, that he carries us himself here. And some of them take up the work and, uh, and do it graciously, but others still, you know, in witnessing that, do not take up the work and uh, experience the, the wrath of, of their master. And so getting back to Rachel's thought here, it, is it a lack of faith in the goodness of God? Yeah, I think it's a lack of faith in the goodness and the mercy and the love that God has given us. And, uh, you know, what is one's response when receiving it, it is gratitude. But what, what is the response when one willingly sets it aside and turns away from it? You know, is compunction, uh, is this deep re repentance and sorrow? 
uh, again, that it, it is not like saying no to being invited to a party within this world. You know, it's being offered that something that is beyond imagination, a participation in the very life of God. And so often, I think, in our day-to-day -day life, even as men and women of faith, we can place our faith life and our response to God on equal footing uh, to everything else in our, in our life, or even on a lower level in terms of its importance and value for us. So, and I'd read this paragraph at the end of the last group. It goes on to say, it is impossible for us who have fallen into the pit of iniquities ever to be drawn out of it unless we sink into the abyss of, humil of the humility of the repentant. I think when I read this over again, you know, I read the step over and over again, and certainly, as, as you know, I've read the work many times. This, this little saying really stuck out for me this time, that one who has fallen into deep sin uh, won't be drawn out of it unless there's a willingness to sink into what John describes as the abyss of the humility of the repentant. You know, that we, if we sink into the depths of sin, then, you know, is there uh, an equal willingness to uh, throw ourselves, as it were, into the abyss of humility, to acknowledge with a perfect clarity what it means to reject the grace of God and the gifts of God. And again, you know, this a difficult thing for us to contemplate and to ponder uh, psychologically and spiritually. I think there's a kind of resistance to doing so in our day-to-day -day life. You know, part of it can be shame, and so we will rationalize certain actions, behavior. He'll go on to talk about how uh, the evil one will sort of lead us to think of God as being tenderhearted when it comes to the idea of being put before us to sin. Uh, and yet then God becomes the harshest of judge, judges when, uh, when it comes to doing penance and turning back to him. And so, you know, as we think about our life and, you know, wh whether we have this kind of zeal for the Lord, I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, do, do we see this level of humility in us? And when we, we find ourselves becoming lukewarm or lose, losing that initial zeal, or are we willing to humbly acknowledge it before the Lord? The sorrowful humility of the morning is one thing. The condemnation of the conscience of those who are still living in sin, another. And the blessed wealth of humility, which the perfect attain by the action of God, is yet another. Let us not be in a hurry to find words to describe the third kind of humility, for our effort will be in vain. But a sign of the second is the perfect bearing of indignity. Previous habit often tyrannizes even over him that mourns. And no wonder, the account of the judgments of God and of our faults is shrouded in darkness, and it is impossible to know which are the falls that come from carelessness, and which from providential abandonment, and which from, uh, from God's turning away from us. But someone told me that in the case of falls which come to us by divine providence, we acquire a swift re revulsion from them because he who delivers us does not allow us to be held for long. And let us who fall wrestle above all with the demon of grief, for he stands by us at the time of our prayer. And by reminding us of our formal boldness before God, he tries to devastate our prayer. So John takes us a step further now. You know, he's these three levels of, of humility that uh, the, the condemnation of conscience, uh, 
or I'm sorry, the sorrowful humility of, of mourning is one thing, uh, of acknowledging one's sin, the condemnation of the conscience, you know, of one, one who's still immersed in that sin, another. And then this blessed wealth where uh, the, the perfect attain, you know, that, uh, that frees the individual. We, we see already in the earlier part of this step a freedom from anger, the, the focus of attention on others and their behavior disappears altogether. And so John tells us that there is a kind of humility that uh, acknowledges one's poverty before God and frees one and makes them perfect, you know, in, in the way that uh, Christ is perfected, you know, in their suffering, uh, they're humbled in every way before God and uh, and know that it's only by his mercy that they're redeemed. It's another thing to be, you know, daily clinging to our sin and knowing the condemnation of our conscience. That might humble us, but not in in the same way. And certainly not in the same way that we're of one who loves God deeply and loves virtue deeply. Any comments on this or any of the paragraphs? Ren. The thought that is coming most to mind for me in reading this step is, do I take my sin ser seriously? Do I really accept the truth about the sin, what sin does and what its wages are? Death. The death re-enters the world within me with each sin. Or do I take the crucifixion for granted, so far removed from it as a historical event that I am comfortable with what has been done for me? Sadly, I realize that I really do hold sin lightly. Uh, and I think that's true. You know, I think uh, I think it's too casual, I think, when people say, you know, that uh, individuals have, have lost a sense of sin. Uh, because sometimes that can focus simply on the action itself uh, and the deed. Whereas I think what we, we are hearing here is this contemplation of what you describe here, the wages of sin, what they are, uh, that what the, the crucifixion really was, what the cross was for the Lord in terms of the bearing of that sin. And have we become comfortable with or domesticated that reality so that we do not feel or experience the sting of our sin at all, much less a deep sorrow for it. And so, you know, where is the relational element as well? You know, do we see it as, again, a detached, these things is detached from our relationship with God and the experience of his love and the gift of himself to us. You know, and this also shows a kind of lack of understanding of the reception of the Holy Eucharist, that if it is an act of consummation of Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, giving himself to his bride, the church, if we're entering into this deep intimacy with the Lord, drawn into his life, then what is it to, you know, to, to turn to sin, having received that gift? You know, what, what is the nature of that infidelity? And how do we experience that within, within our hearts? And again, this isn't something I think that is often contemplated in our day. I think there is this movement away from it for fear that, you know, that the, a scrupulosity will arise or one will fall into despair. And, you know, John, as we will go on, is perfectly aware of that, the dangers of despair, of losing hope. But there is an equal danger, I think he's pointing out to us, of losing sight of the the, the weight, the darkness, and the magnitude of sin itself. Did you have a follow-up to that? Or is your... mm -hmm. Yeah, just something that came to mind when you said relational 
quality was that, you know how, when you talk about asceticism, you say that like in other parts of our life, we're, we're fine with it. But when it comes to God, you know, it becomes this crazy thing. And, and I think about the sins that we're really comfortable with people doing lifelong penances for. Um, and typically they are relational, like someone who mourns, you know, the destruction of their marriage or um, someone who's in prison for life for murder um, or someone who spends their whole life mourning an abortion or, you know, encouraging one. And that I feel like we can really get behind where it's like this devastating thing has happened. Um, there can be hope and there can be some amount of healing, but like it would be almost odd if the morning came to an end in this life. Like, you know, is it really possible to just like get over that um, here? And, uh, and I feel like I'm, you know, we look on those people who are mourning those kinds of things and the lifelong penance and the depth of it is perfectly accepted. And yet, like, I know this sounds a little weird, but like we kill God with sin. Like God really did die for our sins. Like we are the reason he died. So it feels like maybe there does need to be an aspect of like an action of mine necessitated the death of God or brought it about in a causal way. Um, and then maybe it would be more comfortable to accept some amount of perpetual mourning for it. Right. That's very well put. And uh, especially as you, know, you brought in these other aspects of our life and how we typically will look upon uh, the experiences where someone should go to a penitentiary, a prison, uh, uh, because of what they have done. And in particular, as you said, murder or something along those lines. And, uh, and even, you know, when we look at the writings of the saints, we see examples of this, you know, Moses, the black, you know, who, became this great, you know, saint, great desert father, was also one who was this kind of ruthless murderer and rapist. And, uh, you know, when he, you know, we, we hear these stories about him. And I think it was in the Evergatinas where he wanted to steal somebody's flock. I don't know what it was, you know, of animals and, uh, the person like escaped to the other side of a river. And so he puts a knife in his mouth and swims across the river with the intent of killing, killing the man. And he wasn't there. And then in a rage swims back across the river, you know, to, uh, to, to murder this man. And so, you know, there was a kind of brutality in him that was awakened though, when he comes into contact with these desert fathers, you know, that the spirit of, of repentance that is wholly life-changing and changes the course of his life, not just, you know, in, uh, in an abstract way, but a life of continual penance. And, uh, there has been this movement, and I think part of it is driven by a kind of holy psychological view of the human person and the experience of shame, and uh, and this you know view of self-esteem and self-image, and uh, and you know certainly I, I don't want to diminish uh, many of the truths that come forward there, but there is something lacking. Uh, in the perspective and the understanding of the reality. And that's something that is lacking is the reality of sin and also redemption and the, the means of that redemption and how it was given to us. And uh, 
And so I think when we read something like this, we, we've been formed. I mean, we, our common language is that of psychology, the way that we talk about things and people's actions and behaviors. We use modern definitions that come to us from psychology, and we're, we're not aware of it. I mean, it's just become part and parcel of uh, our you know, daily conversation. And so when it comes to being confronted with the reality of sin in our life or in the life of others, uh, that something like penance becomes holy, has become wholly symbolic. And there's almost this fear of an idea of it being too severe, like the idea of, of John being shaken by this, but more admiring it is is as unsettling for us, I imagine, as the deep penance that they're doing, that John could admire it, you know, in the sense that these were men of great virtue and that how they lived their life was something to be emulated. And, uh, and so I think it's very hard for us then to think of a life given over, as you said, to penance itself, that you know, when we see ourselves as having lived a kind of life, our part of our turning to the Lord is also living in this constant state of repentance, knowing our proclivity for sin and the, the pull towards it and how difficult it is to uproot those things that have, you know, taken root over the course of decades or the impossibility of undoing something as you said, such as murder, and that uh, so that one gives one's life to God, you know, in this radical way, offers one's life up for God, you know, in in the face of that reality. So, Rachel writes. I want to add that what Wren was touching upon, many people are uncomfortable with shame, and I'm speaking of a healthy shame that is the result of real sin. How one can be discouraged by others who are uncomfortable with really entering into the suffering of another, and what bigger suffering is there than sin and its consequences? This is why God became man. Right. You know, I think... Uh, you know, this idea of sh shame, you know, part of us wants to hide from the reality. And I think this is what we see even in Adam and Eve, you know, their attempt to hide themselves from God and the truth of what they had done, as if one could hide oneself from oneself from God. And that still is this tendency on our part. And we might become far more sophisticated in hiding from that reality and normalizing too. I think we've, we've gotten so uh, adept at it that we can normalize sin and uh, set aside our shame by you know, making our actions the, the norm. And, uh, and when we look around ourselves and we see culture itself breaking down, you know, it's it's pretty easy to see why and what's going on there. And part of it is this loss of of the meaning of, of one's actions and behavior. And, uh, you know, we can understand barely these days somebody consecrating their life to God. You know, somebody becoming a consecrated virgin of saying, I want to give my, I love God. I want to give my whole life over to him. You know, body, body, soul, mind, all of myself. And, uh, but the idea of saying, you know, that I've sinned in this radical way. And so I give myself over to, you know, a life of penance uh, in order you know, to seek to repair that relationship and the wounds brought about and the consequences brought about by my turning away from, from grace. 
And, you know, I think when we lose this spirit, then I think we also lose sight of the penitential periods of the life of the church as well. You know, this constant call that the church has from us and what we hear from Christ and John the Baptist at the very beginning of their preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so this constant calling us away from sin to prepare the mind and the heart to receive what God desires to give us. And, uh, and so if we lose this sense of repentance, then what does fasting and all the other ascetical disciplines mean? You know, do, do, they, do we lose sight of what it is that we are seeking uh, to foster there? You know, certainly, you know, the renewed desire for God, but also the hatred for sin and the willingness to do whatever is necessary on our part to not enter into it again. Ashley writes, a priest once helped someone I know to understand penance as a daily thing, not just something you do after confession, especially when he gave that someone a lifelong penance for a sin not connected to murder or something horrifically physical, but for a spiritual sin. This priest did not do so as a punishment, and it was in the bounds of not being an unjust burden upon the person, but because the, the person had been approaching a sin against the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God's mercy. So the balm, according to this confession, was a lifelong daily prayer as a penance so that the soul would not be confounded by this temptation. Obviously, this is not the norm these days, but I have met a few people who have such penances who aren't murderers or rapists or thieves, etc. But I think it's interesting to ponder. Yes, you know, I think, uh, you know, certainly are looking at the gravity of sin, you know, our uh, focus would be on the things that Ren mentioned and that we've talked about here. But I think you're right. You know, I think there are certain things that can take deep root within us that pre prevent us from responding to God's grace and what he's done for us. And that might be a lifelong, uh, require lifelong penance. You know, I've often thought, you know, with like the addiction, you know, we've often talked about to like pornography that of our, in our generation, that it starts so early that uh, sometimes eight years old, we've talked about is often the first experience of young boys uh, being exposed to internet pornography. And then like three decades later, immersed in it and being drawn back to it and having experiencing the pain of it. And yet, you know, would a lifelong penance, you know, be cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye in the sense of saying, you know, I'm not going to use the internet. I'm not going to expose myself to the thing that draws me back to the sin as a dog is, you know, returns to its vomit. And so I embrace this lifelong penance, knowing that even though this, you know, vehicle can be a source of joy or information or uh, connection between, you know, many people, that for me, it is something that brings and draws me into this profound distortion of mind and heart. And so I'm going to take the penance upon myself you know, either not to use it until released, you know, by a spiritual father. But, you know, so if a person has been addicted for 30 years to it, you know, there's not going, you know, someone who's an alcoholic isn't going to say, well, I'm not going to drink, you know, my penance is not going to drink for, you know, 30 days or something like that. The, the thought is I'm not going to drink at all. And I know the difference here. So, you know, but there are some commonalities in, in the sense of passions becoming habitual and addictive. And so how does one free oneself from it other than a kind of radical penance of saying, I'm moving away from this completely so that I close the door of it as an option to me and won't allow myself to rationalize. Those in AA are experts in sort of picking out the one in the group who's 
making up stories, you know, of creating reasons for why he did what he did. And, you know, they can sort of expose someone who's, you know, blowing smoke, uh, as it were. And uh, spiritually, sometimes I think we have to do the same thing. So we're a little over, over time here, but what we're going to see in the coming pages uh, might be surprising to us given what we've read. John begins to take us through some more of the subtleties of, of this penance, uh, precisely not falling into uh, despair while acknowledging that there are no insignificant sins and uh, but he doesn't want us to fall into a lack of hope, even while taking upon ourselves a, a deep penance. And then, as I mentioned in the coming steps, he will go further in ways to prevent us from going there in the first place. First and foremost being the remembrance of death. So we'll stop there for tonight and pick up next week. And uh, again, thanks for all the comments and questions. So when we close, as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.